Hi, I'm Lou Eisen, boxing writer and historian, and this is Ring Talk. And uh, happy Thanksgiving to all my uh, fellow Canadians. You know, a friend of mine, a brilliant comedian, the late Aaron Barker, who used to say when he would speak to Americans in the audience, he would say, so you celebrate your Thanksgiving later. We celebrate ours now. And you wonder why. And he said, me too. He said, I live in Winnipeg, Canada. Have you ever been to Winnipeg in October? Nothing to be thankful about. Of course, he was referring to the weather. Winnipeg's a great city, just want to say. And in the 1920s, it was the epicenter of boxing. His fighters would be sent from all over the world because there were no laws preventing fights from taking place anywhere. So boxers could fight often and get good before they went down to the States. Okay, Lou, move on. So today we're going to discuss one of the most controversial fights in boxing history. I've watched this fight hundreds of times. And to be honest with you, when I watch it, I think, well... It was close. It was closer than people thought. This fight was between Kid Gavilan and Billy Graham. It was the third fight. So Graham won the first fight, and Gavilan won the second. This fight took place August 29, 1951, Madison Square Garden, and it was for the Undisputed World Welterweight title. Gavilan was the champ. He'd won the title from Johnny Bratton. And uh, another unfortunate, uh, a great fighter, Johnny Bratton, without a doubt, who'd been you know, cheated and, and robbed and thieved by the mob. So had Gavilan. And Gavilan, when he came to the United States, his ascent was rapid. Uh, he'd gone from featherweight, you know, to when he started boxing because he was tiny in Cuba, and, and up to Bantam and, uh, excuse me, flyweight, Bantamweight, featherweight, lightweight, and then Walter. People. That's why when people get the, uh, accused Manny Pacquiao of using steroids, I always say that's BS. He's always been tested uh, voluntarily anytime, and there's prior history for this. Um, Kid Gavilan was one of them, and so was Jimmy McLaren, started as a fly, also ended up as welterweight titleist. So it can be done. Uh, uh, Gerardo Gonzalez, I like Kid Gavilan as a fighter, and this fight took place, as I said, between him and Billy Graham. Now, I did Gavilan at the Boxing Hall of Fame when I was with Angelo Dundee. And it was very, it was heartwarming because he was rooming at that time. He was sharing, not rooming, he was sharing an apartment with the great Bo Jack. We should do a show on Bo Jack soon. Just Bo Jack was a wonderful fighter who fought with his heart and soul. He fought a whole fight with a broken leg, Bo Jack. And, you know, when his corner said, the leg's broken, definitely. He said, the hell with it. I got one good leg. I ain't sitting down. I'm going after him. That was Bo Jack. You know, like Lou Amber is the lightweight champ in the 30s when he had a broken hand. And, and this doctor examined it and said, it's broken. He said, this guy's a bum. I'll beat him with my other hand. And he did. So when I went, when I saw them at the Hall of Fame, it was a great, it was very funny because they sit beside each other. Uh, and Kid Gavilan never spoke English. Bo Jack only spoke English. Gavilan spoke Spanish, uh, Cuban. But Gavilan, wherever he went, if you saw him at 7 in the morning at the Hall of Fame having breakfast, Elaborate suit and tie. He looked just gorgeous. Suit and tie everywhere he went. If you bumped into him at 11:30 at night somewhere, suit and tie. Angela Dundee. They lived in Florida. Angela said you dropped by his apartment on a Sunday. And they were watching football together. Uh, there's Bo Jack is always wearing chinos and a white t-shirt. Kid Gavilan suit and tie. He just he just always dressed like a gentleman. And Gavilan didn't want the mob to control him. But as most people don't understand, you didn't have a choice as a fighter. 
the mob was omnipresent. And I relate this to Frank Sinatra, my favorite singer, and I think the greatest singer ever, along with Ella Fitzgerald. Frank Sinatra, people will say, you know, he played mob-owned clubs, you know. Yeah, well, all clubs back then were mob-owned. No one else had the disposable income to keep a club open. And to be able to keep it open when, when tickets weren't selling in downtimes or or when they had bad weeks. Only the mob had the disposable income to do that. And so the problem with the mob, of course, is they got greedy in boxing. They got into it in the 1920s because that's when money first came about with Jack Dempsey. And so the mob was satisfied then with 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 um, taking parts of fighters' purses, large parts, and also fixing fights and so they could bet beforehand because betting implies risk. They knew who would win. And they they make a coup with the mob bookies and they make all this money. And then, of course, they got greedier because, you know, by doing this, they're robbing the fans and then they would take all the TV money and then it, it got to be too much. Um, so this fight, the third fight, I watched it. and the, I've watched it, as I said, many times. And I thought going in, having spoken to so many people, um, uh, Ray Arcelli, Fudge, Angelo Dundee, uh, Emmanuel Stewart, so many people, uh, uh, um, uh, Bert Sugar, Bud Schilber, I was predisposed to think, well, Graham won. And so when I watched the fight, the first five, ten times, I thought, it was close. Graham won, but it wasn't a landslide. But I thought Graham did win. Now, the fight, the judge, Artie Schwartz, who, who later on admitted, according to, excuse me, Gart, Matt, Madison Square Garden matchmaker, the fight was at the Garden. Teddy Brenner said, uh, hey, Scrapbook, hey, Scrapbook, if you have a first name, let me know so I can, and, and uh, peace to you too, my brother, let me know so I can call you by your first name. Or I can continue calling you Scrapbook, which is a much better name than my name, Lou. Um, so the judge, Artie Schwartz, scored the fight for Gavilan. The judge, Frank Forbes, scored the fight for Graham. And referee Mark Kahn scored about for Gavilan. Kahn needed a police escort to get out of Madison Square Garden. Artie Schwartz apparently said on his deathbed to his son, who told Teddy Brenner that I was forced by the mob to do it. And then later that was disproven uh, according, uh, you know, when they, when they looked it up uh, about what happened, but um, we'll get to that later. I'm getting ahead of myself. So Gavlan wins the fight by, by a split decision, two to one. The United, the Associated Press scored the fight for, Billy Graham, seven rounds for Graham, five for Gavilan, three even. Uh, UPI, United Press International, scored a fight for Graham, eight, six, one, eight rounds. Graham, six, Gavilan, one even. United UPI did a poll, United Press International, 12 of 15 ringside boxing writers picked Billy Graham. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, who cares what they think? And you'd be right. Because one of the most very well-respected and great boxing writers, the New York Times' James P. Dawson, scored about for Gavilan, nine rounds to six. And he sat there and he said, I'm not looking at the mob control, this guy or that guy. I'm not looking at what the judges are supposed to do. I don't care what they think. I'm looking who I think won each round. And I think Gavilan beat him nine rounds to six. Uh, they fought four times. Gavilan won three. Graham actually won their first encounter. Gavilan was born... They say Barra calls Spain, but I think it was Camagüey, Cuba, January 6, 1926, and he died February 13th, 2003. And um, so he lived a nice long life. 
and he had 143 career fights. He had 108 wins and 30 losses and five draws. And he only had 28 knockouts. He was not a knockout puncher. But you have to know Gavilan stood five foot ten and a half, which was big then for Welter with the 71 inch reach. That was big, of course, until Thomas Hearns came along at 6'1. Billy Graham was born September 29th in New York, 1922, and he died January 22nd, 1992. He had 126 fights, and he had he had 102 wins, 27 KOs, 15 losses, and nine draws. Graham was never dropped. The interesting thing about Billy Graham, okay, scrapbook. So the interesting thing about uh, Billy Graham is the fact that he wasn't a big man. He was only 5'7", 68-inch reach. But he did, you know what Ray Arcel told me, he did so many things well in the ring. And the other uh, irony about Billy Graham is in training camp, when he would train for fights, he'd knock his sparring partners out cold. And I could never figure this out. How, how come he couldn't do it in the ring? You know, I mean, you look at 126 fights, just 28 knockouts. And Rarisell said, because when you're sparring, there's no pressure on you. You're, you're, you know, you're not looking to, you're not expecting the guy to try to take your head off. You're very loose. You're working on different things. And you're more likely to be yourself and let it go. And that's what he did. Whereas when you're in the ring, you said, you got all these mental memos in your head. Don't do this. Don't do that. When you throw this punch, keep this hand up. And he said, it's just, you know, you're so on alert of not getting hit back that you're sort of very careful with your shots. So. He, and it was the same with Gavlin. Gavlin didn't have many knockouts either. He only had 28 and 108 wins. They were both skilled fighters. Gavlin was known for his bolo punch, which was a hybrid uh, uppercut hook. It was like uh, Razor Ruddock's the smasher punch. Remember the one where he almost decapitated Michael Dokes? That was the same kind of punch. And um, their first meeting, February 10th, 1950, Madison Square Garden. Graham wins, 10-round decision, split decision. Second is a majority decision in the 12-rounder, November 17th, 1950, Madison Square Garden, same year. And then uh, their fourth fight after this third controversial one, Graham challenged Gavilan again for the World Welter title, but he did it in Cuba on October 5th, 52, and he lost by... Uh, a unanimous decision, and that wasn't a mob fight. He actually lost that fight, and um, uh, you can only imagine the third fight in um, in uh, Madison Square Garden, the pressure that was on the referee and the judge to score because the mob had gone to Irvin Cohen, who also managed um, uh, Rocky Graziano, and I believe later on. Terry Norris and Irvin Cohen, who lived to his late 90s, uh, Frankie Cartwell took him aside and said, you know, your guy doesn't win unless we get a piece. And he said, I understand. And he said, how much of a piece? And he says, well, you know, 20% to begin, but then that'll move up to 40%. And he went back to Graham and Graham said, no, I'm not going to sell a piece. Because Graham and Cohen knew that once he got, they got their hooks into Graham, Cohen would be eased aside. Graham would lose most of his purses, 70 to 80% of his purses to them. And the fights wouldn't be on the level. So he might fight a guy who was like, uh, you know, 19 wins, 10 losses. And they might say, you got to lose by knockout. And Graham just couldn't live with himself. He said his self-respect was worth more than 
than the lies to the mob. And that's the other thing about the mob. Even though the mob said, we'll give you a title shot and you'll win the title and you'll make a ton of money. They never, they never backed their, whatever they said. They never kept their word. They were thieving, lying, corrupt, evil, vile SOBs that for, for, were uh, forever a stain on the glorious sport of boxing. And when people say today, boxing was better when the mob controlled it. For whom? Not for the fighters like Ike Williams, who ended up indigent, who ended up living in a park. You know, not for the managers who, who you know, uh, Don Jordan's manager, who ended up in a hospital with a fractured skull. The fighters and the managers ended up broke and beaten up. Only Frankie Carbo and Blinky Palermo made money. Everyone else got hurt. So these these two guys, you know, were vermin. And uh, their, their, their control of the sport was just absolutely evil. Let's get to the fight. So when we're looking at the fight, and I'm holding here, this is the chapter... From my book about the fight and uh people keep saying to me when's your book coming out well i'm waiting on the last chapter to arrive and it should be here soon my friend in england tony g has has um has uh uh what has tony done tony's actually you know he he's he's edited it for me which is great so for this bout Irving Cohen also managed Michael Dogs, had him in his will, owned an oil mine. Yes, that's true, scrapbook. Thank you, buddy. And um, uh, Gavlan was born in Camagüey, Cuba, January 6, 1926, second of three children. And he was born to an impoverished Cuban couple. His father left early because he had inadvertently burned down his employer's plantation. Sounds like something an idiot like me would do. And so he didn't know his father. But when his mother got remarried, she took this uh, new man's name, Gavlin, as his last name. And he started boxing. And the family had moved to Palo Seco, a small sugarcane village. So he was cutting sugarcane with a bolo knife, which is how he developed, you know, that punch. And he was f working full time there and in a kitchen from the age of 10 because poverty back then in Cuba was ubiquitous. And he was very small for his age. You know, he was tiny. So he had this, his amateur career, he was placed in what was called the Little Pests Division. And yeah, lightest, it was the lightest weight class then in Cuba. Also, um, as I said before, a lot of guys, Jimmy McLaren, Manny Paco, Ted Kid Lewis, who ended up fighting at light heavy, started as a flyweight. So this, and Ted Kid Lewis was a former world welterweight champion two times. So Gavilan started boxing in carnivals and amateur tournaments. And by the age of 10, he had 60 amateur bouts. That's a lot of experience. He turned professional in 1943. So he was 17 at the time, but he sprouted up. So by the time he, you know, he turned professional, he was 5'10", which was 5'10 and a half, an impressive height for, certainly for a, a welterweight. And Ring Magazine started to take notice of him in his very first fight. He got a wonderful write-up. He beat Antonio Diaz, who was known as Baby Chango, at 122 pounds, which was just short of the 125 limit for featherweight. And for his first contest, that first win, he was given the princely sum of $12. So, but back then in Cuba, $12 in the 1940s to a family that made nothing was tremendous, you know, because you could get a whole dinner for 10 cents. Uh, his backstory is fascinating, even by boxing standards today, because um, his family had moved from Camagüey to Havana, Gavlin, 
His family didn't want to move from Camagüey. They like Camagüey. So he had to move to Havana, which was the big, you know, still is the big city in Cuba. And it was the heart of boxing there. And you can only imagine, you know, it, like baseball players in the 1890s coming from small town America to play in New York. I mean, for him to go to Cuba, it must have been an incredible culture shock. It's everywhere you walk, you know, there's there's gambling power uh, uh, parlors, houses of prostitution, uh, powerful people, gamblers, uh, uh, mobsters, you know, American mobsters. And so he took it all in stride. He started to win. He was extremely focused as a fighter. And he also showed from an early age that he was willing to pay a very high price, you know, to get there. So he he was doing well in the ring, but he couldn't progress his career because no one knew him. You know, no one knew who he was. And it, it's hard to find something to compare it to. Um, for instance, not many people know this. Off topic for one sec, please indulge me. Babe Ruth hit his first professional home run in Toronto at Hanlon's Point. The ball was never found. And people say, why wasn't the ball found? Well, no one knew Babe Ruth then. He was playing as a member of the Providence Grays. No one knew him. No one kept home run balls back then. They threw them back. But even if they, you know, if someone wanted to keep, it wouldn't have made a difference anyways because he wasn't well known. There would have been no value in keeping it. He was winning all these fights, but people said, yeah, but you're nobody. You've got no one behind you. And so he started to glamour and glitz it up in the ring. He started the showboat, started to use the bolo punch. He started to go out and, and really use all of his skill. He had no press backing. He had you know, no clippings, no financial backing. And he kept fighting and fighting. And finally, someone saw him. And he found a really good trainer, Manolo Fernandez. But he found the guy to manage him, which was more important, uh, uh, Fernando Bolito. Uh, but the problem with Bolito is Bolito didn't have any experience as a boxing manager, but he had mob ties in New York. And for a fighter, that's really all he needed back then. So... Cuba had a very rich boxing tradition. So for a guy like him to break in would not have been easy. But he kept at it, fight by fight, round by round. He stayed after each fight. He talked to every fan. He posed for pictures. He, he was a pure gentleman in the ring and out at all times till his last breath on the surf. Um, and the reason he developed the bolo punch was it set himself apart. He needed a, you know, like danger fields. I don't get no respect. He needed a hook to set himself from all the other boxers. Cuba was rich with boxing talent back then. These guys were well-skilled, you know. This tradition went back to the early 1800s in Cuba. These guys could fight. It's still a hotbed. And so to set himself apart, he became a much flashier boxer, which is why he developed the bolo punch. And with the backing of, of um, Bolito, he started to move on and on and on and on. And finally, you know, he realized I can only do so much. He only lost one of his first 35 fights in Cuba. So he moved to New York and he had his manager became very well known, Yamil Shade or Shad. Scrapbook, maybe you can tell me how to pronounce that. If it's, C it's spelled C-H-A-D-E. Is it Shad as in S-H-A-D or is it Shade as in S-H-A-D-E? I don't know. But anyways, uh, this guy also... Uh, trained or managed um, the heavyweight Nino Valdez. He also did, I believe, um, I have it written down here, excuse me. He also did uh, 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 other fighters as well. I think Wilfredo Gomez is someone else. 
that he managed to do that with and uh, yeah, and Felix Trinidad. And so uh, when you boxed in Cuba in the 1940s, you had two primary bases. You had the Arena Cristal and you had the Palacio de, de Deporte. And those locations um, sort of became real strongholds for him. This is where he fought and gained his following. And he's lucky because uh, as his career progressed, he started to fight ranked fighters. And then when he knocked out a guy with a lot of experience, Joe Pedroza, to win the Cuban lightweight crown, this is when Rig Magazine started to push him in earnest. They thought this guy's a real comer. He's going to move up and be lightweight champion, or he may gain weight and become, le- uh, I was going to say leatherweight, welterweight champion. And back then, if you won a Cuban title, it was really an accomplishment because there were so many gifted fighters that were ranked in the world ratings that if you beat someone, it really counted. So after he won the Cuban title, he, he started to work in New York. He moved to New York, but New York was mobbed up. So he wanted to get to the world undisputed world welterweight crown. And in order to get to any disputed uh, crown, not disputed, undisputed crown, especially in the lighter weights, but heavyweight too, uh, you had to go through Frankie Carpo, Mr. Gray, the czar, the underworld czar of boxing, and his companion, Blinky Palermo, who was from Philadelphia. Palermo was the guy who uh, took all of uh, 99% of Ike Williams' ring earnings. You know, Williams probably earned a couple million in his career and ended up probably with less than 10,000. So so he, he, um, he did that to him. He did it to a lot of uh, Canadian fighters, too. So he was just a, a reprehensible, I'm not going to curse, but a reprehensible piece of work. Uh, one of Gavilan's co-managers was a guy named Angel Lopez, who, who would do legwork for the mob. He was a criminal, and he owned pieces of nightclubs. But he was also a conduit to Carbo and Palermo. And Carbo and Palermo were sociopaths. They were stole-clone killers. And this is why the mob got their way in boxing, because you did what they didn't make idle threats. They did what you said. They did what they, you did what they told you to do, or they would kill you, or break your legs, or kill someone close to you. They did not kid around. And if you didn't go with them, they go fine. We'll fix the referee or the judge. And if that doesn't work, you just weren't going to get a fight ever again. You had to go somewhere else. So shade like the blinds. Thank you, scrapbook. So um, it was this in with the mob that helped Gavlan rise through the ranks though his skill did well it didn't help him rise through the ranks it it helped him get the important fights that he needed and he knew with the help of the mob that his wait wouldn't be long before he's knocking on the doorstep of fame you get a guy like billy graham who was your typical new yorker born to a catholic family and the murray hill section and september 9th 1922 and uh, his father was a candy store owner and his mother was a homemaker yeah, they ran, that's right, scrapbook. Uh, Carbone Palermo ran the IBC. The IBC took over from the international, from not the international, from 20th Century Sporting Club run by Mike Jacobs, uh, who had taken over from uh, uh, Jimmy Johnson, and but really succeeded as next big promoter after Tex Rickard. And then when Jacobs had a stroke in the late 40s, he was replaced by his... His uh, brother-in-law, Saul Strauss, who was muscled out by the mob, they signed Joe Lewis to have a heavyweight tournament. And Joe Lewis gave his name in, in return for 250 grand, which he never got, and a say in the tournament, which he never got. And then the international boxing control with, uh, w- with the um, imprimatur of James Norris on the Chicago Blackhawks 
and owned the Chicago Arena and the Detroit Olympia Arena and had a piece of Toronto's Maple Leaf Gardens. He allowed this to go on. It was his money that funded it all. And the IBC was like a big octopus and they ran this, this uh, 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 conglomerate unboxing and they ran it until the early 60s, until it was broken up by the government. Yes, Jim Norris. Thank you, Scrapbook. And Graham did well. He boxed at Catholic boys clubs. He joined the police athletic league. He boxed against other boys. He had a lot of amateur fights. He began his career at the age of 11. Uh, and even in the amateurs, he beat the immortal Sugar Ray Robinson. Uh, he attended Gramercy Park High School for a short time, but he wasn't a good student. It's not that he wasn't smart. He didn't care. He knew what he wanted to be. He thought, I'm 11. I'm 12. I want to be a boxer. Why am I still here learning all this stuff that I don't care about? He was rejected three times by the New York Golden Gloves because he had a heart murmur. But he just thought, I'll correct it by continuing to work out and never drank, never smoked, never ate garbage throughout his whole life. When I say garbage, didn't eat pastries, ice cream, candies, cook, anything like that. Always was a healthy guy. And he turned professional on the 4th, uh, April 4th, 1941. And he scored a fourth round knockout, one of his few over a guy named Connie Savoy. Now, here's the interesting thing. Uh, this is what George Chevalo would always lament to me. When George Chevalo turned pro in the 50s, because there was no one else in Canada that was as good as him or had his name and as good looking as him, he had to fight 15 round fights. So George said he had to sacrifice his learning curve. Well, they didn't do that. They didn't do that with, with, um, with Billy Graham. Graham actually was lucky. Because he started four round fights, six, eight, 10, 12. So he got to learn. And he had plenty during his pro career, plenty of fights. And it's funny because Hart is the one thing, even though it stopped him from the Golden Gloves, it was the one thing he had more of than just about any other fighter in the sport. Uh, he started in the lightweight division, similar to starting in a lighter division like Gavilan had. And, you know, Gavilan. Uh, Gavilan was a tremendous fighter, as I said, but so was Graham. And Graham was nothing to shake your eyes at, in, uh, you know, or, or excuse me, to turn your nose up at. So I'm just excited, so I'm getting a bit uh, ahead of myself here. So Graham kept fighting and fighting and doing well, and, and so did Gavilan. They were fighting the best of the best, and they weren't getting any breaks while they were doing this. So you, you have to understand that while these guys are fighting like that, I'm just looking for the fight statistics here, which I should have at my have in my head, but at my advanced age of 61, it's not easy to have them all in your head. Anyways, so we're looking at these fights, and back then, you know, lightweight ranged from 126 to 134, so it was sort of a gray area. And also, Graham had a problem when he was starting out because he had a lot of hand fractures. So he took time off, but he never could take enough time off to let his hands fully heal because this is how he made his living. He was a skilled fighter. He wasn't flashy, but he was skilled and he was efficient. He didn't waste punches. And, you know, his trainer was Whitey Bimstein. Whitey was this gnome-like character, one of the all-time great trainers, trained lots of great fighters. Angela Dundee loved him. And you'd always see pictures of Whitey in his trousers and a white undershirt with uh, a Q-tip sticking out of his mouth and from his ear. And Whitey taught him everything. And just before he turned 19, a mutual friend introduced him to the great Irvin Cohen. And Cohen 
is the one who, who brought him along. And Cohen went by what Graham wanted. So when Graham said, I'm not doing business with the mob, Cohen said, fine, I'll stand by you. Cohen said to Carbo, I'll ask him. I'm not going to commit on his behalf because he may walk away. So I will ask him and I'll let you know what he says. Cohen was being honest, something that Carbo couldn't even spell. But Cohen was smart because he knew how to bring a fighter along gradually, and so did Bimstein. And, you know, hiring Bimstein was a tremendous move on his part. And uh, in his first 16 fights, he won 12 and had four draws. So he started off well. One thing that happens with a lot of young fighters today, and I used to say in Canada, but this is Canada and the United States and around the world, they get their records built up on guys that aren't good fighters. And so you'll see their records 25-0, and 0, and then you'll see – you know, 20 of their fights are against guys of losing records. And what happens is when they go up against a guy with real talent, they get beat and beat easily. So the way to prevent that is you have them fight good fighters, better fighters with more skill with each successive fight, but fighters that they can learn from. So I never met Whitey Bimstein. I, I heard he was a great guy. Angelo loved him. And he was a, a New York staple, just a lovable guy. And his scrapbook said, a, 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 truly a great guy. And scrapbook, you'd have to agree, he's one of the all-time great trainers, right? If you're going to name, you can't name top 10 anymore for anything because there's just too many great people in boxing in each weight division to limit it to 10. But if you're going to name top 10 trainers or top five, Whitey Bimstein would definitely have to be there. And, you know, fighting off four rounders to begin with was really a brilliant idea because it didn't rush his development. So World War II happens, and Gavland, excuse me, uh, he, Graham joins the Coast Guard. He's on anti-submarine patrol, and then he's released from the service. And once again, April 1944, he starts his career. And at this point, uh, he had an impressive record, 34 in all with five draws. So you look at Graham, and actually his record was 58 No, Today you wouldn't see that. See, today a fighter that would be 58 No would be at the end of his career. But back then, that was the guy at the beginning of his career. Ray Robinson, but before he fought for the World Welterweight title, was like 90 and 0. I mean, that's unheard of today. That's at the end of a career. But, you know, that's what you had to do to get a title match. Today, a guy could have, especially in flyweight or strawweight, you could have eight fights or five fights. Or like Lomachenko, could get a title fight in your very first pro fight. Mind you, Lomachenko is an exception because he's one of the all-time greatest fighters ever to have set foot in this earth. So you can't argue that. Uh, he lost a highly disputed 10-round decision. Uh, that was his first loss to Tony Poloni in Queensboro, at the Queensboro Arena in Long Island. This happened in 1945. Of course, Poloni was a mob-controlled fighter. And I think this was done to let Graham know, don't get too big for your britches. And it was the mob hegemony that just didn't allow him to win that fight. And there's nothing you could do. People would say after, like with the Gavline fight, what could you have done? Could you go to the press? No, because it wasn't news that the mob was fixing fights. Could you go to the law? No, because if you went to the police or whatever, they would kill you. And you couldn't go to the New York State Boxing Commission because a lot of mobsters worked there anyways. Yes, Scrapbook, that's a great Jimmy DeForest, Harry Wiley, and uh, Rare Cell, Angelo Dundee, Gil Clancy, and also Jack Blackburn, who trained Joe Lewis and for a time Jersey Joe Walcott. Blackburn and Doc Bagley, who was the first well-known uh, modern boxing trainer. So uh, Graham was known for his honesty and his moral integrity throughout his whole career. He wasn't going to do business with the mob. 
and he didn't want anything. He was an all-time great, and he had nothing to be ashamed of. When Graham retired, he had his brains intact, and he has integrity intact, and not many athletes in any sport can make that claim. So, and in 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, as I said earlier, the mob controlled the New York State Athletic Commission. They controlled boxing with an iron fist, and only the courts would take would take Carbo and Palermo down, but that was 10 years in the future. This fight was 51. You know, it was 10 years before they could do anything. And you have to admire Graham and, and um, uh, Irving Cohen for standing up to the mob. And, uh, you know, he never got the title of world champion, which would have meant a lot to him. But a lot of people look on Graham as the uncrowned champion. So sometimes it doesn't matter what corrupt sanctioning bodies say. It matters what the people who pay the freight say. And if the people recognize him as champion, then you have to give him credit for that. So in the 1950s, Gavilan's rising up through the ranks. And the Axis powers, Carbo and Palermo, are helping him get, get everywhere he was. And you couldn't stand up to the mob unless you were Sugar Ray Robinson, who, had the, who could change professions, but then came back, found out his family and friends had ripped off all his businesses and had no choice but to get into business with the mob. So, you know, it's hard to describe Carbo and Palermo. They were rapacious. They were rapaciously violent, actually, is what they were. They wouldn't hesitate to kill a manager or a fighter. They never did. It, it, and if, if you were supposed to go down and lose and didn't lose, you know, your legs would be broken, your head would be bashed in. You could have one of your family members killed. These guys, they controlled everything. They controlled the, the betting. They controlled the TV rights, the radio rights. They controlled a lot of the print media, and they took wages from the fighters. Everyone knew what was going on. Only several people, Dan Patrick, stood up to them, the great writer. Mind you, Dan Patrick was 6'6", 280, and he stormed Normandy during the Second World War. So when mobsters came to his house to shut him up, he answered the door. He wasn't afraid. You know, He looked at it as, you guys are the ones in trouble, not me. And also Bud Schoberg, who wrote On the Waterfront and The Harder They Fall, uh, he, he stood up to them and regularly wrote columns disparaging, violently disparaging the mob about how evil and vile they were. So uh, what happened was when the mob got control of Gavilan, um, they, they gave him Charlie Goldman, one of the all-time great trainers. We didn't mention him, Scrapbook. And also um, uh, they gave him Ray Arcel, who we did mention. And that was really a step up in training because between Goldman and Arcel, you had all, you know, over 100 years of boxing knowledge. So who was going to, you know, who's going to be better than that? And they were able to refine a lot of what uh, uh, Gavilan did. And they knew, especially Goldman, you don't, you don't mess with the fighter's natural tendencies, but you can refine them. And so when he fought Sugar Ray Robinson for the welter title, he didn't win. Gavlan, but he gave a great accounting of himself and he cut Robinson. He wasn't outclassed by any means. And people were surprised at a guy, you know, that someone from anywhere, let alone Cuba, could, even with its rich boxing tradition, you can get in the ring with the greatest fighter of all time, Ray Robinson, and give him a hell of a fight. One of the fighters that the mob screwed uh, was Ike Williams, one of my favorite fighters who, when I met him at the International Boxing Hall of Fame, was extremely bitter. And I felt really sad, you know. I mean, he was living in a park on a bench. Someone had to buy him a suit for the festivities. They stole all of his purses. His family left him. So when he testified against the mob, he said, what have I got to lose? What, are they going to kill me? 
they'd be doing me a favor at that point if they did that. So Gavilan, uh, if you look at some old ring magazines, Gavilan was a big thing in the 1950s. In fact, here in Toronto, I went to a second bookstore called BM Books, Movies, Videos, and I got some old police gazettes from the 1950s, and Gavilan was on the cover of one. The Cuban Hawk, Kid Gavilan. And Gavilan, they said at one time, sold more TV sets than Milton Berle. People wanted to see Milton Berle, so people bought TV sets the day Milton Berle's show was going to be on. Apparently Gavilan, we don't know how many, but he outsold him because whenever Gavilan was going to fight, you know how if you're a real, like me, a boxing nut, it's like, I got to see the fight. Whatever it takes, I'll see it. And that was that was when Gavilan fought. So people went and bought TVs by the tens of thousands. Too bad he didn't get a commission from it. And he was made for TV. And TV was perfect for boxing because it only required one camera at the time. People didn't have to go out and look for parking. People didn't have to go out and pay the price of a ticket in the arena. You know, people could stay at home in the comfort of their own home, have dinner, drink a beer with friends and family and watch a fight. And of course, the mob had to screw this because they had to take all the money. And eventually, when there were so many fixed fights on TV, fans just thought, you know, fans stopped coming to the arenas. And they thought, why watch this? It's a waste of time. I'll watch roller derby and wrestling because it's more honest. So in his first chance, first, as I said, to win a world title, first try, Robinson was the guy that he had to face. And this was 1949, July 11th. He lost the unanimous decision to Robinson. Now, you have to understand, Robinson was only a welterweight for a short time. And, and he beat the great Tommy Bell for the title. Bell could fight. But Robinson knew that the big money was in middleweight. So he moved up and he vacated the welterweight title. And, you know, in that fight against Robinson, two judges had it nine to six for Ray, which isn't bad for a young guy like Gavlan. But then the judge, Nairsborough, gave it to Robinson by 12 to three margins. So that was really a bit, a bit much because... Uh, you know, he Gavilan lost, but he proved that he was an elite level fighter, especially in the eyes of Ring Magazine. Um, but as everyone agreed, when you watched the fight, and you can see the fight, it was a pretty even fight for six, seven rounds. And then Robinson's skill and technique took over, and he just he dominated from, from the seventh to the 15th round. Uh, but Gavilan, even though he lost, Yes, that's right, Scrap. But Gavilan's Ike Williams bouts with Enrique Bolano series was mobbed up. All of Ike Williams' fights were mobbed up. And it was a shame because he was such a brilliant fighter and such a great person. And he ended up indigent. Um, even though he lost to Robinson, it didn't matter. It didn't affect his rating. And he still was going to get another title shot because he had the mob in his pocket. The mob didn't care. He lost, but the main thing wasn't the fact that he lost or that he won or a fight. It was the fact that he was drawing viewers and they were making more money. More people were coming out so they could charge more prices for the tickets and they could charge the networks, you know, more money for broadcasting. That's all they cared about. All Palermo and Carbo cared about when the day, you know, if the fight, it's Sunday. If the fight's next Saturday, it's how much money I can make between now and next Saturday. How much money from the TV, from the fighters, from their purses, from the gate, can I stuff in my pockets and not declare it to the government? That's all they cared about. Even though people would said to them, you know, like Chris Dunn, the brilliant Chris Dundee, Hall of Fame promoter, said, you know, you're killing the long-term interest of the sport. We don't care. You can get, you can fill the arenas and leave the fights on the level and still make great money. I don't care. 
because they didn't want to bet on fights that were that where the outcome was unknown. They didn't like the element of risk. They took their money off the fighters, off the gate, from TV, and from betting. They were greedy, and it could only last so long before people – you can't go into people's houses and force them to watch boxing. And it almost came to that with these morons because of their unabated greed. So Gavlin got another shot at the title. And when I say the title, it was the, it was the National Boxing Association, Ring Magazine, and the New York State Athletic Commission who were the real power brokers in boxing. So if you were the Wisconsin Boxing Commission and recognized a person, it meant nothing. Uh, he won the world welterweight title and he scored a unanimous decision 15 rounds, May 18th, 1952 at MSG over the great Johnny Braxton. If you haven't seen Johnny Braxton, read about him. There's a great article by my dear friend, Corey Erdman on Johnny Braxton. He was an all-time great fighter, another guy that was screwed over by the mob, but he deserved to be remembered because he was exceptionally, exceptionally skilled fighter. And now he's the world welterweight champion, but he didn't know that he had the sword of Damocles hanging over his head because now he's not only the world champion, but he's beholden to the mob. So the mob could say, you know, next week you're fighting Phyllis Diller and you got to lose in one round. And if he doesn't do it, he gets his legs broken or worse. He's got to do what they say. So being a mob fighter had its perks. He got the best fights. He got the most TV exposure. He got endorsements. He got all sorts of stuff, but he never got the money he signed for in the fight contracts. Most of the endorsements for cigarettes and other things, you know, he may have had some money, but the mob took almost all of that. And they robbed him blind. Why did they rob him blind? Because he was a house fighter for the mob and there was nothing he could do about it. What are you going to do? You know, you go to the press and the press said, hey, this is what you wanted. You got into bed with him. He didn't want to get into bed with him, but he didn't turn it down either. It wasn't his fault. You know, it just happened. And that's the way boxing was run back then. And he ended up with nothing. There's no more, nothing he could do or say about the thievery. Everyone knew it, but no one was willing to do anything. And people's response, if you were a lawyer, you know, if you were a government official or in the New York State Athletic Commission or a police officer or somebody within power, government they would say well then don't be a boxer do something else if you don't like it that much and so he never thought that he would lose his title and unfortunately in 1954 years after the gav or the fight with uh, graham on uh october 20th he lost in, in a horrible decision to johnny saxton of philadelphia and saxton did not win that fight saxton you know lost the fight and uh it was a terrible decision. Anyways, that's that's sort of the in, inter um, introduction to it. So here we have this fight between Graham, a great fighter who's coming into the fight with a tremendous record, and the world welterweight champion, Kid Gavilan. Now, they had fought before, each won a fight. So it was thought by the public at large and by everyone and, and everyone in boxing, this will be a great fight because both fighters are evenly matched. Braxton defeated Charlie Fuseri for raised vacated crown. Yes. And Braxton went nine rounds of fight. Yeah, that's right. Williams broke Braxton's jaw and, and, and uh, he still kept fighting. That was the era of tough fighters. Guys back then got their jaws broken. They didn't quit. It's not like a, a baseball player today. I have a hang now. I got to go on the DH, you know, or the DL, excuse me. You know, back then guys fought with broken broken jaws, broken hands, 
and scrapbook, as you know, rarely would a fighter go into the ring ever completely healthy. You had to make money. You had to fight. So it's amazing that that uh, Carbo and Palermo are at these fights because they both had people working for them that had been arrested, and they'd been arrested dozens of times, but no one ever said, hey, you guys shouldn't be at ringside. You guys are known felons, but the police did nothing. They thought it's boxing. Who cares? Uh, right before the fight, Jack Dob Kearns, who trained Jack Dempsey, who managed Dempsey, excuse me, middleweight champ Mickey Walker, and later on Archie Moore, the undisputed light heavyweight champion, the greatest of all light heavyweight champions. Um, he, he told his friends in New York and around the world uh, when this fight was coming up, bet the house in Gavlin. Don't bet in Graham. The fight is, is, is a bag. Gavlin's going to win. And before the fight, you know, the night before the fight, Carbo's there entertaining people in his suite in New York. All these hoodlums, all these mobsters and killers and other people in the fight game. He's entertaining them all, all toasting the Gavilan victory the night before. It was written about in the papers, but the New York State Athletic Commission did nothing. You know, the government commission or the government did nothing, uh, state or federal. The police did nothing. The press mentioned it, but nothing came of it. It outraged fans, but what could you do, you know? And before the fight, Blinky was interviewed and he said, hey, I haven't been arrested in almost 20 years. What do you always get on my case for? But in fact, of course, as usual, he lied. He'd been arrested the year before in Philadelphia for reckless use of a firearm and for attempted murder. So these guys didn't know how to spell truth, let alone tell the truth. Frankie Carbo, this is a, an article written by, um, from an article written by um, Dan Parker. You know, uh, Carbo had a lot of murders on his record. He only, he was in and out of prison for a year, two years on the murders. Uh, he killed a butcher and then was sentenced to 15 years. It was out in less, it was out in just over a year. He killed, if you've seen the movie Bugsy of Warren Beatty, Harry Big Greedy Greenberg. He also killed Bugsy single. it was rumored. And as Dan, Dan Parker wrote in the Daily, New York Daily Mirror and Bud Schilberg, if Carver wanted to, he could have shut down boxing coast to coast. He could have just said no more boxing. You know, I say we're going on strike for a year or two. And he could have done that. He didn't. One thing you have to remember, Ray Arcel and Charlie Goldman, you know, are are um, are, are these trainers. And, yeah, they're training, training Gavlin. Now, the thing about Arcel was Arcel uh, had left the business as a trainer. He'd been training. He trained Benny Leonard and Roberto. And Arcel went to Boston and he called up the mob and he said, listen, these aren't ranked fighters. These are just club fighters that have no chance of winning a title. And we're putting on shows for ABC. And they run the fighters by me and I say, yeah, he's all right. He's not all right. I get very little money and it'll never be for a title. And Carbo said, that's fine. It doesn't involve us. But then four or five months later, Carbo said, that's all changed. I want all the money now. I want all your money, all the fighters' money, and all the money from ABC. And Arcel said, I can't do that. Why? He said, because I'm literally, I'm not involved. All I do is when I'm at work at my day job, I'm not in boxing anymore. They come by my world, meet some people on paper. This guy's had 30 fights. This guy's had 28 fights. Would this be a fair fight? Yes. That's all I do. Not good enough. You get it done. And so a couple of days later, he's going to work and he gets near work and somebody hits him on the head with lead pipe, fractures his skull. This is in 52, 53, and he, he's, he's out. And 
the mob forces him to write a letter saying he's out of boxing forever. He doesn't come back into boxing and, and until the days of Roberto Duran and handles Duran after Duran's manager checked him around with the mob and said, don't worry about it because the guys that he had dealt with were long dead. So he was out for well over 20 years and he suffered a fractured skull and he really wasn't involved that much in the ABC boxing program, but that's how psychotic Carbo and Palermo were. These were, were pathological killers and they should have been put down long before they were. So, um, the fight goes on, the fight is made, and for the fight, Irving Cohen meets with Carbo, and Carbo says, you know, even if your guy scores a knockdown, it's not going to make a difference. The only way Billy takes the title from, from uh, Gavilan tonight is if I get a piece. Blinky and I need to have a piece. And, and Cohen, to his credit, said, well, he says no, but, but I will go ask him again, and then I'll come back and tell you. They asked him, and Graham said, no, I'm not giving them a piece. They did nothing. Why should they get a piece? They're not going to take a piece. They're going to take my entire purse. They'll take your money, and then they'll force me to fight the guys they want, and I'll have to lose to someone like Chuck Davey or someone else who isn't nearly in my class. I'm not doing it. So he came back, and, and uh, uh, Carbo said, okay, that's your decision. But, you know, all my guy has to do is stay on his feet. Even if he loses all 15 rounds, he still retains the title. You can't imagine, I mean, somebody having the unmitigated gall to say that. So they went and they had to fight. And, of course, Graham does well. Graham's very skilled. You know, uh, it took him two, three, four rounds. But, you know, he's, he's starting to dominate in the first three, four rounds. But after that, he's starting to really pick it up. Gavlin comes back and starting to win the middle rounds. But Graham was a good technical fighter, so he's countering Gavilan. Graham, you know, when you watch fights today, uh, one of the great, one of my favorite fighters, Showtime Sean Porter, and also Timothy Bradley, another great fighter and a great person, talks about keeping your head offline. Well, that was what Graham would do. Graham was always moving his head, and he was always moving his feet. He was never a stationary target. He would never square up against an opponent. He was very hard to hit at a distance or on the inside. Now you have to remember, here's Gavilan, it's 5'10 and a half, and here's Graham, it's 5'7. So he had to get in, side Gavilan's reach, pound him to the body and head, you know, be able to block the shot with his arms and then move back out. And like a lot of fighters today, last night I watched Sebastian Fedora, and he fought well, and, and he's a great fighter. I love watching him fight, but for the most, point, when he, most part, when he backs up, he has his right hand up, which is good. But a lot of times he doesn't. And, of course, he doesn't because he's 6'6", so very few fighters will be able to reach him. But a lot of guys who back up straight up get hurt. You just don't do that in boxing. And Graham never did that. But he would back up in a crouch, or if he had to be up a little bit straighter, he'd have his hands up to protect his hand. If you want to hit me to the elbow or in the belly, fine, but you're not going to catch me in the head. Graham was never knocked down once in his career because he had perfect balance. Uh, Gavilan had gone down, but Bavlin, Gavilan had tremendous chin and could take a real, really tough shot. So these were two evenly matched fighters. And, uh, you know, five, six, seven, and those rounds, you, you have Gavilan coming on. He's using his faster hand speed. He's turning Graham a lot. 
And, you know, Graham is getting great information in his corner, and so is Gavilan. And these are thinking fighters. They're not there, what should I do next? Should I do this? Should I? But they're reading each other. You know, like a computer reads a program. They're reading each other. He's doing this, so I have to do that. He's doing that, so I have to do this. They're staying out of each other's power alleys. But meanwhile, they're piling up points. But Graham is piling up more points. He's quicker at recognizing the opportunities and, and, and capitalizing on them. That's a very important point in boxing. There's a difference between fast and quick. There are guys like Sugar Ray Leonard or Muhammad Ali who had incredible blinding hand speed. And there are other guys like Jimmy McLaren or Billy Graham who were really quick. And when I say quick, I mean they were, they were exceptional at seeing an opening and capitalizing on it right away. So another guy was just so quick he could overwhelm you with the speed. But if you made one mistake for a fraction of a second, you know, if you're moving back and forth and your left hand went down for a sec, bang, you got tagged. That's how good these guys were. So this went on. This was an even fight, but Graham was starting to put rounds in the bank. Both fighters were evenly matched. And um, as I said, Graham, like Gavilan, in training camp, they could knock guys out. But it just never happened in the ring. It never really translated. But they never went for the knockout. You know, we saw with uh, Artur Bitterbiev in a fight in Montreal last year where he was cut and the referee was going to stop it because there was a lot of blood. So he had to go out that round and knock the guy out. And he did. This, these guys didn't go for knockouts. It was organic. If it happened, you took it. But mostly, you know, it was, it was scoring points, putting rounds in the bank, and being smarter tactically than the man you were facing in the ring. It wasn't a boring fight if you watch it. It was a smart fight because each round was very close. But Graham, I thought, was winning more of the rounds than Gavlin. But it was very close. It wasn't a landslide. And uh, Graham and Gavlin, you have to understand, during their entire career, which is well over 100 fights each, were never knocked out. You know, and that says something about them. Um, Gavlin's losses, some of them were genuine. Others were, were mob directed. Uh, same happened to Graham. Even though he wasn't a mob fighter, he fought mob fighters, and sometimes he won, and sometimes, you know, it just didn't go his way. So he had a tremendous skill set. Both men were brilliant, uh, technical, really high-skilled boxers, elite-level fighters. And today, they would just rule the division. Um, and the big advantage going in into the third fight, and Gavlin held the big advantage. Because when the skill of both men is equal, it comes down to who wants it more, who can better impose his will on the other man. But what the big advantage Gavlin had was he had the mafia in his corner. So nothing could go wrong. So if he did get dropped, it would be a slow count. If, if somehow Graham could manage to stop him, Graham would have been disqualified. So all Gavlin really had to do was stay on his feet make the fight relatively close, and he was going to leave the arena with the title. Now, Gavlin may not have looked at it from that perspective or even realized it, but he had to know to some extent that there was no – didn't mean he didn't give his all, but there was no way that, that Graham was going to beat him that night if the mob had anything to do about it. And if you read the book um, Jacob's Speech by, by Kevin Mitchell, it's a wonderful book on the 1950s, and it's about how the mob controlled boxing 
Jacob's Beach was an area where you could buy tickets. It was a little office. It was named after Mike Jacobs, who's, who, who didn't just scalp tickets to boxing, but to hockey, to football, to baseball games, to opera, to theater. And and um, one of the writers, I, I don't know who it was, but Shelburne said, you know, there were rumors that the mob fixed the ballet, you know, that bet on the swan and, and Swan Lake to die. So, you know, who knows what they did. But that's where you got your tickets. And that's where all the writers and the criminals and everybody got together and and would talk boxing. So Gil Clancy was a wonderful, I, I loved Gil Clancy. And I got a chance to meet him at the Hall of Fame. And we talked a lot about Hurricane Carter and he was saying, which we're going to do a big show on soon, about how everything you heard about him was true. And a, anyways, he told me a great story. He said he was a big Billy Graham fan. So he's there and they would go to Eddie's Bar, uh, which is right around the corner from the old Madison Square Garden. And he's watching the fight at the garden. And, you know, or he's watching the fight. I think it was at the garden. And uh, he runs out, goes to Eddie's Bar, right around the corner. And he says, Eddie, there's a new world welterweight champion. And Eddie looks at him and Eddie Gray says, nope. And he goes, well, they got to give it to him. You know, he won at least nine, ten rounds. Right. He probably won more, but they're not going to give it to him. Why? He said, why would the mob give him the fight? He, they're not, the mob's not getting Graham's money. They don't have control of his career. They didn't ease out Irving Cohen. There's no way the mob is going to allow this. And Clancy said he sat there, Bill Clancy, and he had a big lump in his throat and his jaw dropped when they gave it to Gavilan. He just thought, how can I do that to the guy? Dad trained for months. He fought for years. He delivered the performance of his life and beat Gavlan. He, he, he conclusively beat Gavlan. And they still ripped him off. And you know what? It happens today. It happened in the first Lennox Lewis Evander Holyfield fight. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And so he, he just, he called it the most terrible decision he ever saw in his entire life. And he, as he said, you know, he told me at the Hall of Fame, what I didn't realize was that decision was already in the bag. It was already decided long before the fight that Gavlan uh, would win. And that's sad, but it's true. Now, most people in attendance thought Graham won the fight, uh, without a doubt. Uh, Artie Schwartz had it for Gavlan. He was one of the judges. The other judge, Frank Forbes, I don't know how he lived, scored it for Graham. And of course, the referees I mentioned before decided about for for uh, Gavlan. Now, here's the thing. Um when you look at one of the writers, as I said, James P. Dawson, who scored the fight for Gavilan, uh, he, he was one of the few, but he was well-respected. So he scored the battle nine rounds to six for Gavilan. He said the champion won the first four, the eighth, ninth, tenth, and eleventh, thirteenth. Graham won the fifth, sixth, and seventh rounds, and the twelfth. And in a closing burst of boxing brilliance, he won the fourteenth and fifteenth rounds. But in my books, it wasn't enough. And... You know, Graham was said to have stung Gavilan many times. He buzzed him. He outboxed him. He was brilliant that night, but enough. And Graham forced to fight him. He was the effective aggressor. That's the main thing. Gavilan was moving and, and, and circling him, but it was Graham was the effective aggressor. It's not that he was just moving forward, because that's never enough. He was moving forward and effectively landing on Gavilan all the time. And people thought, you know, would the outcome have been different? It's a question I've been asked. If Graham was aligned with Palermo or Carbo, maybe, maybe the outfit 
Maybe the outcome would have been different, but maybe not. Maybe they would have said, it's not your night tonight, so you lose. Or maybe he would have won, and then he would have had to lose it three fights later. All the while knowing in all those fights for the mob, he hadn't made a cent. And he was no longer with Irvin Cohen, who he trusted. So he, he declined that. He decided to fight on his own terms. And Cagrain was accused Palermo of fixing the fight along with Carnival, not if he wanted to live. And he could have gone to the press with the story, but what was, why? It wasn't news that the mob was shady and fixing fights. Everyone knew that was going on anyways. And as I said, Dan Parker was one of the few guys that raked the mob over the coals on a regular basis. But what can you do? I mean, in 1951, it's a significant date. The fight happened August 29th. This was at the zenith of, the, of organized crimes control of professional boxing. No one could break it. It was 10 years later when the courts broke it, and a couple of years, 13 years later when Ali broke it, when he won the world heavyweight title. So after this fight, a well-known boxing writer, Eddie Borden, uh, he wrote for Boxing Wrestling Magazine. He quit. He said, I can't cover this sport anymore. This is a joke. I can't watch guys destroy other guys and then not win because two, two goombas sit there and laugh and count the fighter's money who they're ripping off. Meanwhile, the guy that won goes home crying and, and knows he'll never get another shot. Uh, what won the fight for Billy Graham? His left jab. He had a piston-like left jab that's extremely accurate. And he also used his right hand to the body. Uh, this was on a couple of weeks ago. I was watching, I can't remember the fight where one guy, brilliant fight, right hand to the body, right hand upstairs. That's how you do it. And that's what Gavilan was doing it. And, uh, or excuse me, that's what Graham was doing. Gavilan really didn't know what to do. You know, he couldn't stop the jab and he couldn't stop the right hand to the body or the right hand over his jab to his head. And pounding Gavilan's body for the whole fight slowed him down, took away his legs, made Gavilan have to square up and fight him toe-to-toe, -to -toe. Uh, and, and it came down to a uh, difference in technical skill, and Graham was just a superior fighter. So something very interesting happened in this fight. And what happened was, and it's never happened, I, from my understanding, in any fight of the past 300 years, and this will blow your mind. 33 years after this fight, 1984, Right, it was 1951, the New York State Athletic Commission opens up an investigation. The head of, this, of the commission then was former light heavyweight world champion Jose Chegui Torres. They open up this investigation to find out what happened. And the reason they opened up was because of Teddy Brenner's book, Former Matchmaker, Only the Ring Was Square, Former Matchmaker for, for, M, for uh, MSG. And there was a brief article in the New York Times about how how Artie Schwartz, one of the judges, told his son, who then told Brenner, that I was forced by the mob to score the fight for Gavlin on the night of the fight. And so they had this big investigation and it went on for a while and people were actually hopeful that the outcome might be changed. And, you know, apparently Schwartz admitted to Graham's agent or his manager, Irvin Cohen, that the outcome was not on the level. Duh. And after a while, after the investigation, Jose Torres said, I, I'm ruling out fraud because the evidence eliminates the issue of the deathbed confession. In other words, the evidence was supplied by Schwartz's son in the form of newspaper reports and a death certificate 
and it proves that uh, Schwartz died of uh, cardiac arrest. And he was said um, uh, he was said to have made a deathbed confession in the hospital. He didn't. He died at Grand Central Station. So this was all fabricated. He didn't make the confession. He was never in a hospital, and it was a made-up story. Does that take away from the fact that the mob fixed a fight? No, it definitely fixed a fight. Brenner wanted to said that Schwartz wanted to clear his conscience, but it was too late for that. Thirty-one years is too late, to, you know, to do that. The story was apocryphal, and the evidence that was flimsy. Um, overall, the mob. The mob's uh, control of boxing hurt many people. It was short-sighted. And it was short-sighted because it eventually hurt the sport, took it off the air for a while. And it, it, boxing didn't start to recover until years later, long after these guys were out of it. Although other criminals and mobsters like Don King, who worked for the Cleveland Mafia, came in to control the sport and hurt the sport as well. But one thing Graham can say, not many people can say that, is that he fought his whole career uh, he had moral rectitude. He retired with his brains and his money intact. He had self-respect, integrity, and class. And there's not many people in any line of work that can make that claim once their career is over. Gavilan went into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 1990. Graham went in in 1992. Graham, uh, unfortunately, died at the age of 70, 72, whereas, whereas um, Gavilan lived a lot longer until 2003, I believe it was. And uh, you have to admire Graham for not making the thousand bargain with the mob. And I'm just looking here. I just want to get the exact dates. I mentioned them earlier, but I want to get the exact dates of when uh, each man passed away. Um, yes, okay. So uh, I have it here. Billy Graham, born September 9, 1922, died at the age of 70, January 22nd. So that wasn't a long life but it was an event for life and a fruitful life. And he got, people admired him or respected him long after his career was over. And Gavilan died 2003 uh, at the age of 77. He was a gentleman. He was when I met him, but he was a gentleman to everyone. Uh, this was a great fight. Please watch it on YouTube. It's a close fight. You can't say conclusively that one guy won. Uh, uh, I mean, I can, and other people can. It's hard to say that, but it wasn't, what I'm trying to say is it wasn't a runaway decision. It wasn't where you bang your head against the wall and say, I can't believe it, he dropped him five times. It wasn't like that. Graham did win, but it was by a slim margin, but it was still good enough. He won. Unfortunately, the mob didn't see it that way. In the end, Graham will always be recognized as the undisputed World Welterweight Champion. And ironically, Gavilan gained more abuse and and, and uh, negative press in victory than Graham did in defeat. I'm Lou Eisen. That's Ring Talk for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Join us next week for another great fight and enjoy your Thanksgiving. Thank you very much. Have a great day.